Hi, and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Martin. And this week, we are talking about so much bike racing. Oh, my Lord. Uh, we have the Giro d'Italia started last weekend. Liege-Baston-Liege. We had a fantastic Primoz Roglic victory there. Bronchopil on Wednesday uh, had an amazing finish for Julian Alaphilippe. Once again, celebrated too early, but then actually did hold off Matthew Vanderpool to win that race. Uh, we have a couple of boring Giro stages in the next couple of days, but then we have Gent Webel. We have a mountain stage, a summit finish on Sunday. Gent Webelgen on Sunday, and then we're into the we're while the Giro is running and while the Volta starts, then we're into the meat of the Spring Classics, which are now in October. So uh, a wild time for uh, for cycling. But uh, just up top, if you want to support the podcast, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash btppod or, and or sign up for the newsletter at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. Uh, there's a free weekly option and then a premium daily newsletter option. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast, you, are, you would love that newsletter. So at least sign up for the free one. Uh, yeah, y- you'll enjoy it, I promise. But uh, yeah, I, yeah, it's a little tough. It's hard to know exactly what to talk about uh, without being too scattered around um, and what to drill into. We also have an interview with Zhao Corierda of the Corso Sports Marketing uh, Writer Agency. Him and Ken Summer are the uh, two partners at that agency. They represent some of some just really fantastic writers that are also great people like Soren Krog Anderson, Mads Pedersen, and the current leader of the Giro d'Italia, Zhao Alameda. But uh, this was like the world's worst inter- interview for me to do. I can't pronounce anything. And then Zhao, I, I feel like I'm getting Zhao down slightly. But yeah, these Portuguese last names are tough. But we're going to have to learn these names because Zhao is looking like a real star of the future this year. Uh, I'd, I'd say that's the story so far of the Giro has been uh, Garrett Thomas crashing out. He after I still wasn't clear to me what his form was. He was great in the time trials, these short efforts. He had a great opening time trial, uh, but I, I don't know. I just wasn't sold on his. He was so bad at the Dauphiné Libre. I wasn't sold on exactly how he was climbing, uh, but he crashed out in the neutral zone on stage three that went up Mount Etna. Uh, really tough volcanic climb, and then Simon Yates was also was dropped uh, as well, but just for fitness reasons, not for crashing. And it was later found that Garrett Thomas had a broken hip, so he had a very good reason to be crashing out of that or drop being dropped at that race. He uh, left the race the next day. Simon Yates uh, is now like three minutes forty eight seconds down on overall leader Zhuao. I, I don't know, I've heard that I feel like I wish Chris Froome had never come back um, at the 2018 tour because I feel like it just gets paraded out. As an example, any time a leader gets dropped early in a grand tour that it's like, well, Chris Froome came back. Maybe that could happen again. It's like, okay, that was like a one-time deal. Chris Froome was a four-time Tour de France winner, an amazing rider. I mean, Chris Froome is good enough that like, yeah, he can just hang around and then blast away in the last week of a Grand Tour. That's like not that's not common, shall we say. Simon Yates does uh, not have the pedigree or the strength that Chris Froome has to do that. And even I mean, that's Simon Yates on like at his best. Everything has to go right for Simon Yates to win a Grand Tour. He's won one in his career, by the way, one podium. And when he won the uh, 2018 Volta España, he was also the he got dropped on the stage that Chris Froome powered away on at the 2018 Giro. Um, he just had like an epic collapse. But long story short, everything has to go right for him to win a Grand Tour. So just the fact that he's struggling this early, he got dropped on stage three. And then yesterday on stage five, he was really struggling on, I wouldn't, I mean, it's not an easy climb, but it was like 20K long. So obviously that's hard, but he was every all the other GC favorites were like comfortably in the group. Um, no attacks by any team or were really doing any damage. And also the heaviest guy in the race, Filippo Ghana, was powering away from the breakaway to solo to the stage win. So yeah, it wasn't a great sign that he was struggling on that climb. He's just physically not where he needs to be. 
Uh, he's also three minutes, 52 seconds down, not 48. So yeah, I don't think he can rally back from this. I'm, I'm going to write him off at my own peril. Um, I mean, even let's say he does recover and he's very good. It's just, he's not, he's not good enough to make up that time. I mean, there's some seriously good riders like Pelo. I mean, I would feel better about Pelo Bilbao, who's three minutes in front of him, over three minutes in front of him, even though he just recently did the tour. I mean, Wilco Kelderman's in third place. You know, he's, he's not a, he has no pedigree of like winning a grand tour, but he's a good rider. Like he's not just going to fall apart and have Simon Yates beat him. Vincenzo Nibali is three minutes in front of him. I mean, he's not going anywhere easily. Even Domenico Pozzavivo, who's an awful time trialist. And that's not, I just don't see the path here. Steven Kreuzweg, uh, he's not, I, he's not my favorite rider. I don't feel great about him winning a Grand Tour, but I would feel better about him currently in eighth place, a minute and 21 seconds behind the leader Joao Almeida than I would about Simon Yates almost four minutes down. That's ridiculous that people are talking about him like he could win. So, uh, yeah, we're just gonna, let's just go through the Giro, the first couple stages of the Giro really quick. Uh, stage one was an opening time trial in Sicily. It was a really funky race. It was like downhill into Palmaro, Palmaro, and it was tricky. I mean, it was so windy, incredibly windy. And I think the wind was changing throughout the stage. So you had like uh, tail crosswinds for the early starters, uh, which I think Joao was part of. But it was like Joao and Simon Yates had some favorable wins. And they had very good results. Joao was leading on the road until Garrett Thomas. No, no, he got second. So Filippo Gana was the only one that beat him. Uh, he beat him by 22 seconds, which is a lot, but that's pretty good. I mean, Ghana is one of the best time trialists I've ever seen uh, in the sport. So to be 22 seconds back is very impressive. And Garrett Thomas was a second back from him. So to beat Garrett Thomas is very impressive. Uh, and yeah, Simon Yates was uh, 20, like 25, no, 27 seconds back from Joao. So that was actually very good for Simon Yates to be only 26 seconds behind Garrett Thomas. Uh, and then a lot of our other leaders, like presumptive leaders, went late, uh, which was a huge mistake. Um, I, I don't know. I feel like I would have hedged. If I was them, I just would have looked at like, okay, where's like Garrett Thomas going? Let's try to go with him. But yeah, like Vincenzo Nibali, Jakob Fulsang, uh, Stephen Kreuzweg just all had terrible, terrible times. Like uh, Wilco Kelderman. I mean, Kelderman's a pretty good time trialist, and him and Nibali finished within a second of each other, a minute and a half down on Philippe Agana, the winner. You know, Stephen Kreuzweg, traditionally good time trialist, he finished really far back. Let me look that up. Yeah, he finished a minute and 44 seconds behind the winner. So, yeah, those guys are, are digging themselves out of a hole. Uh, stage. Three comes around, up Mount Etna, really, really hard climb. Uh, yeah, these names are just out to get me. An Ecuadorian rider on EF wins it solo, super, Jonathan Casado. He wins out of the break, super impressive ride. Like the last three kilometers of Etna are really, really steep, really hard. And he barely lost time on the chasing group behind. But uh, he paid for that effort later on stage five and lost a bunch of time. Not surprising. Giovanni, Giovanni Visconti, the uh, Sicilian, I don't know if he's a native, he was actually born in Torino up north, but he grew up in Sicily, uh, so that was like an interesting subplot, but the, the GC race kind of blew up, I mean, it was really hard, like Wilco Kelderman clipped off the front with a few kilometers remaining and got, you know, 22 seconds on Jakob Fulsang, Rafa Micah, Vincenzo Nibali, Jonathan Castroviejo, Domenico Pozzovivo. So, like, that's not insignificant time to steal right there. And then Steven Kreuzer got dropped. He, I thought he was gone. That He clawed his way back and finished five seconds behind those guys, which is super impressive and I think could, be, could hold consequences later in the race because he is still recovering from a crash at the Dauphiné. So he's going to be weakest right now. But if they don't get rid of him um, and he can hang around, he's just going to get better as this race goes along. You know, I'm not a Kreuzer believer by any means. I don't really like picking riders who are older and haven't won Grand Tours to start winning Grand Tours later in their career. But he's very good. 
Uh, I think it's a mistake. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't really like this. Is like the tour. It was a mistake to let Tadej Pogacar stick around. It's like, well, what were they supposed to do? Like, he's the strongest guy in the race. They can't just drop him because they feel like it. So, it, yeah, I mean, yeah, let's not say a mistake, but it, it's consequential that Kroizuk is sticking around. And then Joao was right behind him, you know, six seconds behind him. No, seven seconds behind him. Uh, he actually tied on time with Casado the uh, EF rider who won the stage, but I, they did a count back on uh, position, fin- position where they've finished on each stage, and he, he uh, got the pink jersey because of that. Um, and then you have, like, Brandon McNulty had a pretty good ride. I mean, for an American, it's like an amazing ride to be, he was a minute and a half down on the winner. So he's actually in the top 10 right now. Um, and, so yeah, Simon Yates was really far down. But the big takeaways here for me were, you know, Nibali, I was worried about Nibali, and he has not looked that good this year. And the fact that he was able to stick with Fulsang, uh, Micah, Castrovijo, Pozovivo, it shows like he's ready to race. He's like come to this race ready. So that is, uh, I, I'm all in on Nibali now. I put a bet on him before the race at plus 700. He's now like a plus 250 rider, which is, he's the favorite for the overall. Uh, that's a little steep. I don't know if I would bet on him at that price, but you look at this top 10, there's not a lot of pedigree here. I mean, you have like Pelo Bilbao. Actually, I would I would normally be really interested in how Bilbao would do. He's in second place, but not a st- strong time trust. And he just did the tour. I mean, this is unprecedented. Two weeks after the tour to be doing another grand tour. Yeah, it's a little absurd. Like that's, I don't think that's ever happened before in the history of the sport. And normally the Giro and the tour are four weeks apart and doing the Giro tour double is almost impossible. Only uh, the last rider to win both races was um, Marco Pantani in, in 1998. And I'm trying to think the last rider to win the tour after doing the Giro yeah, someone, there might be someone in there, but it got it might have been Pintani. It's very unusual. Uh, Tom Dumoulin got second at both races a few years ago. I called that like the plastic double. Uh, that was super impressive. But it's to two two weeks is is crazy. Uh, I don't think he'll be able to hold this form in the third week. That's just way. I think that that load, that training load, racing load is way too high. Uh, so yeah, we're just kind of in a weird position. I. This is kind of maybe going to be a zero for the aficionados where you don't have a big name. I mean, in the top, let's say, 20 riders, the only rider to ever win a Grand Tour is Vincenzo Nibali to have a career Grand Tour win. That's incredibly uncommon. Uh, I think Simon Yates is the next Grand Tour winner, and he's down at 21st place. So, yeah, Nibali is the only proven winner in this top 20. Uh yeah, it could be. It could be his year. He's thirty. I, I mean, I generally on my predictions and betting, I don't like old riders. You know, it's like always bet on youth. Nibali is thirty-five. I mean, this goes against everything I stand for, but I like him. I mean, you could see yesterday on stage, uh, stage five, uh, he was just like really drilling it on this wet descent into the finish, and even though he didn't get gaps there. That's how he wears people out. I mean, it's so much easier. He's so, such a more skilled bike handler than anyone else in the peloton that that's easy for him. And everyone else is really working. Uh, but, you know, both physically and like their nerves. It's just, we saw Rimko Evenepoel crash out of uh, Il Lombardia because he was trying to follow Nibali on the descents. You know, like A, it puts people under pressure physically. B, you know, even if they don't crash, it's just stressful to have to go down to sense that fast and see they could crash. I mean, that's how he won the 2016 Giro because Kreuzvik was following on a descent and crashed into a snowbank. So I think that's why, you know, these these really tricky Italian roads suit Nibali really well. And that's why he's better at the Giro than any other Grand Tour. So, he, you know, he's my pick to win this overall. But there is also... I kind of sketched this out in the newsletter yesterday. There's a scenario where Joao uh, survives this stage nine. We have a couple sprint finishes coming up. I mean, let's I say sprint finishes. Italian sprint finishes are unlike a, a tour sprint finish. These are still tricky stages. I mean, every stage of the Giro is tricky. Uh, there's just, I mean, yet tomorrow stage seven is maybe the most straightforward one. And then you have like stage eight. There's a big mountain in the middle of it. Stage nine is a summit finish. 
I haven't looked at the details of it. It looks like it kind of stair steps up for like 60K and then is just like a little steep punch. So let's just assume Joao holds the lead on that. There's not a really big consequential uh, GC day. I mean, I'm looking at all these stages. They all look tricky. Anything could happen. Just keep that in mind. But then we go to the stage 14 time trial. In theory, that helps Joao. And then we're into the th- we're into the third week, which is incredibly hard. Like one of the hardest third weeks you could imagine up in northern Italy in the Dolomites. Uh, the one wrinkle here, though, is the Dolomites have snow currently, and they are forecasted to have snow next week. I don't have, nor do I trust, like two week out forecast. But you know, we could have some of these big mountain stages called off, and or shortened, and then you have this interesting scenario where like. You have a 22-year-old unproven rider going into the third week, but he misses some of the, he doesn't have to go over some of these big stages and these favorites kind of get caught out because they're not as good at time trialing as them, or let's even say they are equal on time, you know, equal time trials with them and they can't pull them back. So that that's kind of one thing I'm keeping in the back of my mind. But if we just assume that we get this third week, which looks, it's going to be fantastic racing. Uh, yeah, I'm picking Nibali on this every time. Kelderman on paper is a great pick. He's 29 and he's never won a Grand Tour. I don't love that. I don't even think he's ever podiumed. Uh, I don't love betting on older riders to start doing things that they haven't done before. That's not my, that's, uh, I don't love that. And he always tends to just kind of have, not like terrible days, but just days where he does, you know, he'll fall out of contention for the win. Uh, he's not super robust over three weeks, but he's a good time trialist. There's a lot of time trialing left, and he's a pretty good climber. I mean, he looked incredible on stage three, so you can't write him off. But uh, full sang, full sang looks really good. I mean, this is uh, the the full sang trap. Everyone falls into this. He looks so good. I mean, he's a really good one day racer. He's a good one week stage racer, and then things go, go pear shaped in the third week. And I am. Just assuming that's going to happen. He's 35. The 35 year olds don't just like change their nature of riding and start winning grand tours. Uh, so, yeah, I'd say it's uh, Nibali followed by Kreuzweg followed by Kelderman would be my three picks. But this race is funky. There are really no dominant teams here. Uh, Giros in general, just because of the topography of Italy, are hard. They're just really hard races to control. I mean, you could get like Rafa Mica, you know. Get, having a stage where he gains a bunch of time because he attacks from the gun. You know, weird stuff happens at this year of. So it's not quite like the tour where we have this like formula for success and we can look back and say the winner on in the first mountain stage is usually the winner at the end. You know, it's a much more unpredictable, uh, dare I say, exciting race. So I've really been enjoying that. Even, I mean, even these, uh, it's like, let's say by zero standards, it's been a snooze, snooze fest so far. And I think every stage is interesting, you know, and we, we aren't even like at the, uh, this is just an amuse bouge. We're in, uh, uh, how do I say politely? Like the, the mafia, like the, the center of the mafia in Italy, we're in like, uh, Sicily and Calabria. Uh, these are, it's like, did, did the RCS cut a deal with the mafia to like only go to mafia controlled towns? They're not the most, uh, picturesque villages, shall we say. But the, the even 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 these places, like you get these helicopter shots, and it's so beautiful. You'd you'd go to vacation in these places uh, in a second, like uh, yesterday's finish into like a ski town in southern Italy. I'd never heard of. It looked fantastic. Like I would go there tomorrow. So uh, when we get up in the north, I think it gets a little more picturesque, a uh, little bit more vintage uh, Giro. Uh, and yeah, I think it's gonna be a great race. Uh, so let's talk about Liège really quick. Uh, it's my least favorite monument. I am not a huge fan. It's hard. I mean, it's the hard, it's one of the hardest races in the, in the world tour. Like Lance Armstrong famously never won it despite winning seven tour de France's. Uh, it was, it came down to this really cool. I mean, I think it was the best final kilometer of the year so far. <laughs> Alaphilippe. It's just he was all over the place. I don't know what he was doing, but he was like he was shook uh, because you had Matej Modric, uh, a Slovenian ch- chasing, caught on to the lead group, which had Tadej Pogačar and Primoz Roglic, and so it then had three Slovenians plus Julian Alaphilippe, Mark Her- and Mark Hershey. 
So, and Matej Modric kind of, I, I don't know if he did this on, on purpose, but he really did lead out Pogacar and Roglic because he just rode right by them when he passed them, when he caught up to them. And Alaphilippe kind of panicked and jumped on his wheel, which let Roglic and Pogacar just sit back, you know, kind of grab the, the better wheels to sprint from at the back of that group. Alaphilippe kept, he kept looking, uh, Matthew Vanderpool, who, I mean, let's just say he's an amazing, he's like one of the most talented riders in the world. Like I respect the guy's ability. He races very, like he's an exciting racer, but I don't know what is going, it's like he's colorblind to race importance. He just will race, like he raced the Bink Bank Tour that finished the day before. He had a 50K solo breakaway to win the stage and win the overall. Incredible, but it's the Bink Bank Tour. And it's the day before one of the biggest races on the calendar. Like, I don't, who is advising him on his races? I could not figure this out. So he's a little tired, obviously from that incredible performance the day before and he misses the move and then he pull he chases himself they almost catch the leaders and then he wins the sprint for i think it was sixth place but it's like what like what is he doing like i don't know why his management isn't better that it's like okay we're gonna do a couple stages of bink bank then we're gonna drop out and you're gonna rest up for one of the biggest races of the year i don't know like it's so frustrating to me and then in Instead of ever being at a Grand Tour, he's on this rinky-dink team. They're just, uh, he's doing like Braun Chappelle, which is a fine race, but I'd rather see him at the Giro. I don't know. I just feel like he's, he's probably, in, like his endorsement deals aren't what they could be because he's just going all out at races that don't really matter and then leaving a lot on the table at these bigger races because um, uh, Alaphilippe was shook. I mean, he thought, I think he thought Vanderpool was going to pull him in and then out sprint him, which is what happened at Amstel Gold last year. I, that's my theory on Alaphilippe looked weird. I mean, he was really losing his mind all day. Like he switched his bike a couple times. He changed his shoes. It's kind of strange behavior. I wonder if it was just so shaken by that. It was really wild. So Alaphilippe was off the front with Jakob Fulsang, and they just get mowed down by Vanderpool, who then out sprints him after working for god like 20k just to pull him back by himself he like led the group in or was just leading the group doing all the work and then out sprinting them after catching catching them i think it kind of scarred out of philippe because he looked shook in this final he couldn't stop looking over checking where vanderpool was he launched this sprint too early he got he just was not thinking straight and then mark hershey was just gonna clean his clock he was coming around he was gonna win the race and alaphilippe looks at him and then swerves over and hits his front wheel takes him out he has to unclip so he doesn't crash tade pokachar is on his wheel so he's out of the race and then alaphilippe sits up for the longest celebration i've ever seen and primo's Roglic, to his credit uh was was a little too far back at this point but he just kept he was just sprinting head down and then beat him at the line. It was an incredible bike throw. It was great. I was so happy for Roglic after losing the tour. And it's like, but I, you know, it's like what? Like we don't have to feel bad for Primoz Roglic for getting second of the Tour de France. It's a great result. These guys are all getting paid handsomely. Like we shouldn't feel bad for him. But uh, it did. I I like seeing that. And I like seeing it because it, it was just these is a very different type of race from the Tour. Uh, I think the last Tour winner to win Liège was. I want to say Andy Schleck in 20, like 20, 2009, maybe. I don't know. Don't quote me on that. It doesn't happen often, though. You know, it's a different type of race. And I think it just it showed, Roglic got the show, like, that he's not just this robot who can time trial and climb. That He also packs a good sprint. He uh, can think critically at the end of races. He has a lot of race craft. So I, yeah, I thought that was so cool. And it was great to see Alaphilippe lose after ruining Hershey's race. I mean, that would have been a big win for Mark Hershey to win a monument of the sport. There's only five monuments at that age. So, yeah, I didn't like to see that. But then, even more strangely, at Branch Appeal, uh, this was on Wednesday of this week, uh, he's coming to the finish. Matthew Vanderpool actually was the one that was shook here. He couldn't stop looking behind him. I, I don't know what these, what's going on with these guys. He was just, like, really nervous. Uh, gets in his own head. Alaphilippe launches the better sprint. You know, he kind of sits. He just sits in launches at just the right time and then sets up to celebrate way too early and Vanderpool almost beat him. Uh, if, the, if the finish line was a meter further, 
he would have lost the race to Vanderpool while celebrating early. But he uh, he did get the win in the World Championships jersey. Odd to see that though. Um, so yeah, that, I mean that's kind of all that I said. That's only all the racing that's been on. That's a lot of racing. Uh, but then we have Gent Wevel again this weekend. I'm not even going to preview that here because I'm so preoccupied with Giro and then just kind of keeping up as much as I can on these one day classics. When we get to, I believe the weekend after this one is Tour Finders. I'll buckle down and get a little bit more serious about a, a preview for that one. But I think, you know, my advice to everyone, if you are interested, just let's just watch Gent Wevelgen. That's kind of a good, it's not, it's not a one for one with Tour Flanders. You get, usually it's a faster rider, a sprinter that wins Gent Wevelgen, but let's watch it, see who's strong. And it will give us an idea about who could win Flanders. But I mean, I can just tell you right off the top of my head, like Matthew Vanderpool's got to be the favorite. I mean, he looks so good right now in these races, despite his poor race choice, choice of which races to, uh, to pick. It shows you that, you know, maybe he was just like, yeah, Liege is a training race for me. <laughs> it's like, whatever. I know I'm going to be tired, but I'd rather bank the training of doing two races that weekend and riding all out on both of them. So yeah, he's looking really good for it. Um, Woot Van Aert. I mean, I'm a bigger fan of Woot. I, I feel like Woot's the better race winner. He, he races smarter than Vanderpool. So we saw that with uh, when he rattled off the, the Strada Bianchi Milano San Remo double earlier in August. So yeah, he would also be. But it's going to be if both of those guys are fit and locked in for these classics, they're gonna. It's going to be amazing to, uh, if for Flanders and Pere Roubaix. I mean, it could be. This could be like the the Booning Cancellara rivalry part two. So uh, yeah, that's going to be really exciting. So a little bit of background on Joao Correa. He was a former professional cyclist on the Cervelo test team. Uh, but b- even before that, he was like a star junior rider as a, as a Portuguese. I believe he, was, he moved to the U.S. with his parents from Portugal at a young age, but he was still going back and forth to race. Uh, and I, I, just to put into perspective how good he was, he uh, was he left racing to go to college at Fordham University in New York, and then was working in the publishing industry, like at, at important positions, like at, as at a pretty young age, like being a, a publisher of major major publications. And he described to me, I just I just want to start. This is the first time I ever talked to him uh, a few months ago, and he's like, I just wanted to uh, start racing, uh, racing my bike, so. Yeah. And I, I was just, I joined Bissell and, you know, it's like with that type of racing, you can just, uh, you know, you can still work full time and, and get some results. It's like Bissell was the, I'd say the best U S based pro team at the time would be a team that I would like, I would have dreamed my entire cycling life goal would have been to have made it on the Bissell team. And this guy just cut me down in one comment of just like, yeah, you know, you could be on that team getting results uh, with a full-time executive job. So it was at that point that I realized I had made the uh, the right choice to stop pursuing professional cycling and get into other things. Uh, yeah, so his the talent level on some just shows you the split in the talent level there is. Uh, but and so and he actually went from actually worked out well for him because he got out of publishing just as that industry started to fall apart as their margins decreased. And revenue sources went away and jumped onto the Cervelo test team. I think he lost, I remember hearing about this back when it happened, he lost like 60 pounds and joined the Cervelo test team, which was one of the best teams in the world at the time. And went from there to launched his own, you know, with contacts he had made after being back at Cervelo test team, launched his own uh, sports representation and marketing, marketing agency, Corso. Um, it's, they represent a lot of, kind of like the, I'd say they're like the the Billy Bean Moneyball of the rep, of the, the writer representation world. It's a lot of writers that they kind of talented writers they find. Him and his partner Ken Summer. Uh, I first spoke to Ken about a year ago for a piece and was just really impressed with their philosophy on on how they find and select and then manage their writers. It's it's a really holistic approach where they they're more concerned with like how the writers are doing as young men than they are about how they're performing. So yeah, yeah, they're, they're a really impressive pair that stood out to me in a sport where that's not the, usually the, 
the emphasis. So, and so Joao is the client of Joao Almeida, the current uh, leader of the Giro d'Italia. So I got, he uh, joined us on the podcast from Portugal to talk about uh, just Portuguese cycling. It's a, Portugal produces a lot of really high level riders, but they, uh, they don't find, they don't generally leave Portugal. And we talk about that in the, in the interview. Oh, and one, uh, one surreal thing about this interview was Lawrence Tendam, the uh, famous performer professional cyclist, was uh, just in the background, silent the whole time. So the biggest, we've, the biggest get we've gotten on the podcast so far, but we couldn't quite get him to talk. So, uh, so just uh, <laughs> know that Tendam was, uh, was looming this entire interview. We're, we're counting that, though, as a guest. All right, Joao, thank you for joining us on the Beyond the Peloton podcast. It's great to have you on. Yeah, no worries. And do you mind saying your full name, uh, just so I can practice saying that for the intro? Oh, Joao Correa. Okay, I won't say it exactly like that, but I'll do my best. <laughs> I got Lawrence Tendam in the background. Do you want him in the background or not in the background? Uh, that's that's perfect. Put him a little bit more in the background there. There we go. Hey, don't fart. Don't be an idiot. What are you guys in Italy or are you somewhere else? Uh, we're, uh, we're in Portugal right now. I own Ingamba Tours, so he's on a trip with us. We're doing a, one of the Ingamba Tours trip right now here in Portugal. I've actually I stayed at a hotel in Italy that had like an Ingamba set up in it, and it was like oh. Very- and, uh, yeah, the Dolomites, right? Yeah, it was like very cool. Like the car, like even like the little cards they give you with the maps on them and stuff. It's like very well done. Uh, it was La Perla. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, they're really, they're really solid people. I just wanted to connect with you about, uh, so I, I didn't know that jo- Joao, Joao, Al- Alameda, Alameda, is that how you say his last name? Uh, Almeida, Almeida yeah. was your client. I just was like, oh, that's funny. They have the same uh, first name. They're both Portuguese. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I saw uh, you guys tweeting about it that he was a client, and yeah. I, I had I'd never heard of him before. It must have been God. It was right after the COVID restart. What? Let me look at the Volta Burgos, where he yeah. went, you know he was incredible at that race. And it was like, oh yeah, maybe. Oh, maybe he's just like you know, he's a young guy. He was bored during lockdown, and he just did a lot of training, so he's kind of cut these older guys out. But then, as you know, as everyone's had a chance to train to race, yeah. and he's at the in the lead at this Giro. So, I mean, you know, he was he won Liège with only age as a non twenty three and was second at the, the baby Giro. You know, so this isn't uh, you know, he's not like he's not somebody people weren't looking at. You know, he's probably one of the better neo pros of this year you know so i mean obviously what's happening in the Giro is a little unexpected but you know we're living through a, a time period where these kids are turning pro and they're performing right away you know i mean obviously pogachar winning the tour um the biggest race in the world it's you know they're all from the same they're all from the same year 98 99 you know Hershey, all those guys are basically 21 22 years old you know yeah so and he uh even even in his Burgos result, I think Rem, Remco Evenepoel won that race, and yeah, then yeah. so it's like it got over. I you know I had to like dig a little bit where it's like, whoa, that's crazy. Remco won, and he's twenty years old. And then you're like, wait a second, there's another guy in his team that's twenty two yeah. that got third. Yeah, I mean Remco won Algarve. Juan was there supporting him. You know he won obviously Burgos. He was there supporting him. And then Tor the law I. I, did he win that as well? I'm I'm not even sure, but I think actually that's the first time he might not have raced with Remco. But they they've you know they've been racing a lot together this this year, so and you know and Remco Remco's in a league of his own. I mean that's a whole different that's a whole different beast, you know. Yeah, yeah, but that's wild to even to to think you have this 22 year old who's leading the Giro, and then it's like well the, it was teammate is is in a league of his own. Like it's hard to imagine. Yeah, and, yeah, 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 yeah like, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, but I'm Remco with with him winning, you know, San Sebastian as a neo pro, like you know, that never really happened before. You know, like I think that that he's, you know, he's he is definitely in a in a different league than anybody else. You know, yeah. Uh, until Pogachar came along and won the tour, you know, because obviously Pogachar also is is a pretty you know unbelievable rider. But Remco, I mean, Remco is. Um, 
2020, maybe. I mean, he's the second year out of the juniors. So, I mean, Joel and Pogachar, you know, Joel did three years as an under 23, you know, with Axel. Um, so he turned, he turned pro after three years as an under 23. And was that when he was on uh, Axel's Hagen Berman, Hoggins Berman action team, was that a, a connection that you made or did Axel find him himself? Yeah. No, he, you know, we, we, we have uh, any year we have anywhere from 30 to 50% of the team is, is with the agency. So we, we put him on there. Ruben Guerrero was on there before. The Portuguese rider was on EF. You know, the Oliveira twins were our UAE uh, were there as well. Um, you know, so Axel has had a bunch of Portuguese kids on the team every year. And we have, we've had, a, you know, a lot of other kids on the team, like Teo uh, was on the team as well, you know. Um, so we have a, good, a really good relationship with Axel and, and try, you know, put quite a, f- a few of our under-23s on there. And I, I, correct me if I'm wrong. I think that he's the first Portuguese rider to wear a leader's jersey at a Grand Tour in 31 years. And then I, yeah, Acacio da Silva is, you know, was the last one to wear it. I believe he wore it at the Giro. He definitely won it at the Tour. You know, and no Portuguese rider has ever won a Grand Tour. Is that correct? Yeah, Agostinho was second in the Vuelta one year and was probably the closest rider in the 70s to to win a a Grand Tour. You know, and Portugal has a pretty big culture of cycling, um, but a lot of the riders, they stay in Portugal, they race in Portugal, you know, so that only in the last five to 10 years do you really see quite a number of kids make it to the pro tour. You know, obviously, you know, Sergio Paulinho was one of the first ones of the modern generation. Then Rui Costa, you know, was the next one that was, you know, probably the, the best known. But now you've got, uh, I want to say, four or five in the Pro Tour. You know, in, in our agency, we have four Portuguese riders that are in the Pro Tour. Uh, two at UAE, one at EF, and, and, and Joel at, uh, at the Koinic. That's interesting. So the, the pro scene was robust enough that you could be like a great rider in Portugal and never really have to leave to yeah. pursue a pro career? Yeah, I mean, it's always sort of been like that. You know, like a lot of the riders, they don't really leave Portugal. They don't have the opportunity to leave when they're young. Um, and, and then they just kind of get into the system here. They race for pro teams here. Sometimes those teams race in, in Spain, uh, but most of the time they race in Portugal. I mean, there are six or seven pro teams in Portugal and the tour of Portugal is kind of the, the, you know, the height of the season for all those guys, which used to be a three week grand tour back in the day. And now, now it's 11, 12 days. Yeah, it's like the hardest race like you've never heard of. And even yeah, at is. 12 days, it must be, that must be the longest race that's yeah. not a Grand Tour. Yeah, it is. So it's after the tours, the three Grand Tours, it's the longest race you know, on the international calendar. Uh, yeah, but it is, it is the hardest race nobody's ever heard of. So, I, uh, I, He was actually an Ngamba guide in Italy who told me he like, won a stage at the, Volta, at the Tour of Portugal. And I was like, never been more impressed with anything in my entire life. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know who you had, but was it Manuel Cardoso? I think so. He was on Radio Shack yeah. at one point. Yeah. So he won. Obviously, he's, he was a sprinter. He won. He won a, a stage. He won a stage in Tour Down Under, and then he also won a stage in Volta Catalunya. But he, he's, you know, I'm sure he's won a few stages in the Tour of Portugal. So, but he, you know, he's one of those riders that that did make it, you know, out of the country. Um, and, um, you know, there's a few of those guys, but now there's more, you know, like we're putting these kids on Axel's team, they get an opportunity to actually show their stuff. And then generally, you know, Portugal is a, is a small country, but it's similar to Slovenia in that it's a, it's a very small country, but it has a pretty deep sports history. Uh, and in some sports, especially endurance sports, it's got some really great athletes, you know? So in cycling, cycling is a huge sport in the country. I mean, if you come and watch the tour of Portugal, you know, like there's thousands of people on the roads uh, watching the stages and, and the TV ratings are off the charts. That's interesting. That's, I noticed that about Slovenia where it's this small country. It's pretty insular. Maybe it's not like on the global tourism map. And then yeah. I went there and it's like, I was really shocked at the cycling scene. Like, you know, it's, yeah, there's like this big packaged global cycling culture with like Italy and France, uh, in like a little bit of Austria, but it's just like, yeah, yeah they're yeah. out there doing their well, own thing, producing amazing. Well, is even more. 
Slovenians even more because Slovenia has, I don't know, a population of 3 million or something, 4 million. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the number of riders in the pro tour, it's, it's, you know, it's gotta be, you know, if you, if you look at cap, you know, number of people living in a country, number of people in, in pro tour, it's gotta be one of the highest, uh, one of the highest ratios. Yeah. And it, I guess it's similar to Port- Portugal too, where like, that's like, there's another pro sport in Slovenia. It's basketball. Portugal's probably football. Yeah. where they're even yeah. more they even punch more above their weight internationally so, yeah, yeah yeah football is the number one sport in the country and and for sure we have a lot of international players and so it's, would cycling be like the second most popular sport after football yeah yeah generally it is you know but football is sort of on a league of its own you know there's a newspaper called bola that's the number one newspaper in the country and like 95 percent of it is, is about soccer you know yeah. so it's soccer is 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 something is, is completely different so but but after that yeah cycling is you know it's definitely number two it's probably it's probably number two you know with like things like running or even fill even um um we we do not field hockey but hockey on uh roller skates roller hockey i don't know if that's what you call it but it's it's one of those things like it's huge in portugal and I don't know. There's like five countries that probably play that. <laughs> That's interesting. And uh, is it a big deal that he's in the pink jersey at the Giro in Portugal? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is. You know, like it's funny. It's funny because he was he got the pink jersey on the day of the last stage of the Tour of Portugal, and I think like this Tour of Portugal winner was more of a big deal that day than than Joel, which is kind of crazy. But it is. You know, it is a big deal. I mean, these are the sorts of things that can transform um you know the sport within a country when when a, an athlete of a country like ours is performing at an international level like this it does put a big spotlight on 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 the sport and in the, on the country and and if and if people in that country have their confidence of themselves in a way yeah yeah and do you think as time goes on is like is the portuguese scene getting stronger or or not i shouldn't say it like that like the self-sustaining pro scene, like, is that going to make it in the future? Or do you think more and more riders will have to go like to the pro tour basically to make a career racing bikes? Yeah. I mean, I think the young kids, if they have a way out, nobody wants to be racing here, you know, and, and pro teams, if they have a way out, the problem is they don't have, you know, so there, there isn't enough investment in junior national team and under 23 national team where these kids are, have the ability to showcase themselves in an international level, you know, and if, and, and then it's, you know, things like development and training that they just don't have uh, that level of, uh, of, um, you know, knowledge here where those kids can really make a difference, you know, so kids like Ruben, you know, who are super talented and João who are super talented, they don't have the opportunity to race outside of the country and have the opportunity to go to a team outside of the country it's really difficult for them to make it into these international teams, you know, and then once they're in, 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 you know, in Portuguese pro teams, they're sort of just lost, you know, then they're in the system and that they, they rarely ever leave that system. You know, you don't see really that many riders going from Portuguese pro teams to international teams They're Once they're there, they kind of just stay there. Yeah. Yeah. Now that you mentioned that, I don't think I've ever really seen a rider that's made that transfer that made that jump. Now, usually they'll go from like that team to Cairo Rural, and then from Cairo Rural they have the opportunity to to jump elsewhere. But it's but it's you know it's really it's really difficult. There just isn't enough. Um, there isn't enough spotlight in the country, but also the reputation of these teams is really bad. So you know if you win the Tour of Portugal, um, usually that's a sign that all, all isn't okay. You know, and, and a lot of times those riders, nobody wants to touch them, you know, for, for rightfully so. You know, the country has had a really negative um, reputation around doping um, in, within, within Portuguese races. So, so we, as an agency, we want to, we, when we take kids from here, we take them at a young age. You know, we take them when they're just becoming under 23s before they've gone into that system. And, and, then, and then they get an opportunity, you know, and, and that's that that really does change the trajectory in some of these kids' lives. And uh, I guess I assume that your agency then is like a big, like a big avenue for a young Portuguese cyclist to then get make inroads with international world tour teams. Yeah, you know, we're more. It's funny, like the nationality we have the most of is Danish, 
you know, we represent Mats Peterson, Michael Valgren, you know, we, we, Mikael Berg, you know, we've got, you know, a lot of some of the better Danish riders, um, you know, the Portuguese riders, they come through us. Uh, obviously I, I live part-time here between here and the United States. I know the scene really well, and I have a really good relationship with the national team uh, director. So when he tells me this kid's really good, I usually, you know, I usually pay attention and if I can help them, I help them, you know, but it, it's not, it's not always super easy. Um, every year I, I manage to get two out, three out and, you know, at least that gives them, that gives them a fighting chance. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Yeah. I noticed that on your website that it's like very Danish heavy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, those yeah. Are... well, my partner Ken has, you know, he does most of the recruiting and he does a lot of the talent scout with uh, another guy that works with us named Andreas Stauf. And, you know, for some reason, like we, we just like Dan Denmark is, you know, this, this incredible producer of really good raw, you know, talent in cycling. And we've managed to, the, you know, Michael Valgren was our, our first big Danish rider. And then Mads came because of him. We, we signed Mads when he was a junior and then, you know, and then the other kids come because they know, they know those guys and, you know, they know the reputation of the agency and, and, uh, yeah, so we were we definitely have a an, an overrepresentation of Danes in in the agency. You're kind of like the Oakland A's with like Billy Bean. It's like you've like found this inefficiency. Yeah. It's like no one's looking at Denmark, but they just they're amazing <laughs> riders are coming out of there. Yeah, I, I mean Denmark is is another one of those countries that, that like produces an incredible amount of of cycling of cycling talent, you know. But but they've been on the international scene for a long time. Everybody knows them. They've got really good development teams there. Now the system the federation has is 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 really really good. You know, I mean, Portugal is totally different. You know, Portugal doesn't have any of that. So that's where I think you really do find a lot of raw talent that just needs development. You know, um, so. And what do you attribute? Like, what's different now? I, I was just thinking about this this morning. Like, I'd never heard of Mark Hershey before stage two of the Tour de France. And now it's like he's a permanent fixture at the front of every big race. He's just like, it's like instant oatmeal version of a superstar. Yeah. And, you know, and he's not the only one. Like, I guess Filippo Ghan is a little bit different because he was probably the best tr pursuiter of all time for a while on the track. So it makes sense that he's come over and is very good. We used to have all these young riders, or Tadej Pogacar, coming over and just like instantly dominating. Like, what do you attribute that to? How, like, is it just a different mentality in the peloton or does it speak to a cleaner sport? Or yeah, it's that, I mean, the sport is a totally different sport. You know, it's, I would say for sure it's cleaner, you know, that allows kids to show themselves because it's a more of a level playing field. You know, the training, the knowledge around training, the knowledge around food, the knowledge around energy, you know, how to get energy to your muscles, all of that stuff is totally different. And these kids have access to that. So the ones that are really talented, that talent is able to, to rise a lot, a lot quicker, you know, and you look at, you look at kids like Hershey and our rider, Soren Craig Anderson, who won two stages in the tour, you know, like once they make that step and they're winning at that level, their confidence just totally changes, you know, and it's amazing. And you've got these examples, you know, even, even, you know, 10 years ago, I mean, I remember when Richie Port won uh, the time trial at Tour of Romandy, nobody had ever heard of Richie Port, you know, and then he went on to the Giro of the Italia and he was in the Maglia Rosa for a long time and won the white rider's jersey and was top 10. And that immediately changed who he was as a rider. You know, you start believing in yourself, the team starts believing in you, starts giving you different opportunities. And to me, with a lot of these kids, you know, is they're, they're super talented. That talent comes out quicker. Uh, and, and then once they make that switch in their head where they truly do believe in themselves, like Hershey's a great example where, you know, like he did what he did at the tour, you know, which was, you know, an incredible, an incredible story, you know, a kid that loses that stage like that, everybody felt for him, you know, yeah. I think even Pogacar won the stage felt for the guy, you know, <laughs> but then he's able to, to a few days later win, you know, so all of a sudden you have this story where it's a kid that, you know, failed, but then he succeeded and you need that success to really make the story great. And, and he just kept riding at that level every day. You know, that's the thing that surprises me the most is like every day these kids are riding these grand tours now, like it's a one day race, you know, like they're just, you know, Sunweb was out there attacking and, and doing an incredible job, 
you know, um, doing the race they wanted to do and not treating it as a three week race. You know, they were almost treating it the stages they went after. They were almost treating them as one day races, you know, and they executed their teamwork to perfection and brought these two kids to stage wins. Um, you know, but I, but I think that it's just a different it's a different game. These kids are a lot more mature than once they believe in themselves. They're just going, you know, in Hershey, you saw him read the way he raced uh, the worlds, the way he raced. Liege was only age, the way he raced, you know, um, Bromser Pyle the other day. I mean, he's just the, the kid's on fire, you know? Yeah. So. I couldn't figure out why they left Michael Matthews at home. I was like, what are they thinking? Like, you know, I don't know if you remember, but he like complained publicly every day uh, at the yeah. 2019 tour. And I was like, maybe they're just sick of hearing him complain. But yeah, like, I mean, you know, the, 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 those guys, we have a few riders on that team. We know the program really well. And they've got a real process and they're very process oriented. You know, they've got a really good support staff and they just, they, 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 they built a playbook, you know, and, and, and then they, they made a decision like that, which was to leave a guy who's a pretty big name, but, you know, generally guarantees results at home, you know, and maybe it was because that guy just took so much resources and they decided to, um, you know, split it a little bit more and ride more like a team. And I think their success really was, complete teamwork three four or five guys you know that that were really helping in the breakaways and setting these guys up and picking the right spots to go and they were executing you know i mean they won three four stages and so it's it was unbelievable to see that yeah no that was incredible yeah i guess it helps it's easy for us to sit back and be like they have a playbook but they also have like incredibly talented riders like soren craig anderson and yeah mark Hershey. yeah and, and, and yeah absolutely they absolutely you have to have the talent you know, and they've had a playbook in the past and sometimes that playbook just doesn't work out because, hey, there's 18 other teams, 20 other teams with a playbook too, you know, and, 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 and the racing sometimes dictates, dictates the tactics on the road. Uh, but they, you know, this year they, they really executed perfectly. But you need that strength, you know. Soren won that first stage, you know, in the last 2K when he attacked, you know, and kind of last K, 2K when he went and surprised everybody. Uh, and then, then he went from a breakaway far 20k out or something he went i mean the amount of power he was putting into those pedals was insane because nobody was going to let that guy right away yeah. you know they knew what he was able to do so you know you absolutely have to have the power and and i think after the first win he really believed in himself more and he was just when he went he had no doubts you know everything about his body language you know when he went was like i'm going for the win and he had no doubts he wasn't gonna be able to win no, yeah, it's uh, that was super impressive. I mean, he was really impressive at the at the tour. I guess and it's funny as he's twenty six. I just looked at his profile. He's twenty six. Where it's like, man, what a yeah. he's an old man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this exactly. guy's washed up. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, you probably you don't want to say anything specific about Joao's uh, potential at the Giro, but I I a didn't know he was that good of a time trialist until the first stage yeah. of the race. But if that's replicable, I mean, the stage nine is tricky. It's like a summit finish. Yeah. But then you really just roll into the stage 14 TT. He could, in theory, extend his lead there. And then you're looking at a final week that has, if the final week week runs as planned, obviously that's difficult. Those are some of the hardest right. stages you could imagine. But if it's, it gets shortened due to weather, that gets pretty interesting pretty fast. If he has yeah. like over a minute lead... And then some weather shortened stages. That could be a, a pretty interesting third week for you guys. Yeah. I mean, hopefully that doesn't happen, you know, and the race runs its course the way it needs to run its course. But, you know, Joao is a super smart, very, very calm guy. Like he's probably one of the calmest bike riders I've ever met. You know, it takes a lot to, to frazzle him. Um, and um, you don't know what's going to happen. You know, it's day by day. Like, we don't know what's going to happen. And, and generally, in the past, he's always gotten stronger as race has gone on. But this is his first Grand Tour. He's already exceeding everybody's expectations. And whatever happens, happens, you know. And as long as he gets through the race safe, for us, that's really the most important thing. He gets to Milan, finishes his first Grand Tour, you know, and does it safely and comes out of it healthy and, you know, is able to take another step in his development. And whatever place he's in, he's in. That's what I... I spoke to your partner, Ken Summer. This must have been like a year ago. And I was surprised that uh, the agency's emphasis on just like the riders being happy and healthy. Yeah. That's like your guys' main goal. I thought that was pretty unique from a sports agency. Yeah. I mean, for us, you know, 
first of all, these are kids, you know, and, and our responsibilities to them, you know, and, and we, we define success as, you know, helping athletes have a, the best career they can. And in different athletes, that's a different thing. You know, Ted King was, was a worker and success for him was very different than it is, you know, for somebody like Shwo, you know. Um, but the most important thing is to help them guide them through their career, obviously maximize their earnings in their career, you know, whether it's 10 years, 15 years or seven years, but really, you know, for me personally, and, and I think, you know, for Ken as well is, you know, we'll see success and how these kids come out of pro cycling, you know, once they're done with racing and their life starts, that's when I think we'll really see, did we do a good job with these kids? Are they able to handle that transition? You know, did they save enough money? You know, did they set themselves up for the next phase of their lives? You know, that's for us what's what the most important thing is, which is why we're so careful at uh, choosing riders. You know, we need people that have a certain attitude that can work with us uh, and why we have a limit of 25 athletes on the agency, you know, because we want to make sure that we can we can we have enough time for all of those guys. You know, it's not a numbers game for us. We have really you know, we have relationships with these kids. You know, we develop friendships with them, which isn't always great. You know, but but it's it's we care deeply about them, and and that's for us. Thing, but successful, whatever success is for them, you know, and not everybody's definition of success is going to be to win something. You know, some guys are there in support roles, you know, and uh, and those are really important roles, you know, and they they should have people behind them that believe in them and that support them and that help them in the development and make sure that their careers is rewarding you know, as, as possible. That's uh that's pretty impressive. You guys are limit, basically limiting your own earning power by capping it at 25 riders. Yeah. You know, we're limiting our earning power, but also, you know, then we have to make sure we're really finding the right talent, Yeah, you know, and for us, it's not just finding the right talent, but it's finding the right kind of young man, you know, because, you know, just because you're winning bike races and you're talented doesn't mean that you're a good fit for the agency or we're a good fit for you. You know, so it's it's kind of a double edged sword is you need guys that, you know, are going to do well, you know, but you also they also need to be the right kind of young man that's going to be successful here and we're going to be successful for them. You know, we have a pretty uh, a pretty low, you know, uh, you know, a pretty low radar for bullshit. So, you know, it's it's the agency is is funny in that way and that, you know, we have a, a really high expectation for how these guys need to behave, you know, and how they need to support each other within the agency. Um, you know, so, and that's, that's pretty unusual for most agencies. Yeah. Do you guys, do you guys have like a strategic partnership with the financial services firm or anything to like help them do financial planning? Yeah. So no, you know, and one of the things is I've always said to the guys is you don't put your money with your agent, you know, and you don't mix the two. So our job is to, you know, help them make the best choices in their career you know, and, and for different riders, that's different things. And obviously the core of our job is contract negotiation and making sure they, they, they earn over their career, the arc of their career, they earn the most amount of money possible, you know, um, in terms of the finance, in terms of the investment, we don't get involved in that. We do have a rule with uh, the young kids that they have to save 80% of their money, especially the ones that have done really well into the pros. Some of these guys are making, you know, there's, seven figure deals as neo pros, yeah. you know, so we have specific rules for those kids. And usually we work with their parents and we say, Hey, in order for you to stay within the agency at the end of the year, you need to show that you saved 80% of your money. And if you don't show that you saved 80% of your money, then you're out of the agency. Um, you know, so that's sort of how we try to teach them about finance. And then if, if they, if they need help um, with, with finding financial advisors, then, you know, we might make some intros to them, but that stuff's super complicated because they all live in different in different countries and there's different rules in different countries. You know, we, we help them with around tax advice where we work with uh, consulting companies like PricewaterhouseCoopers in specific countries to give them tax advice on how to keep most of their money. You know, and in some of these guys' cases, they have to move to places like Monaco or Andorra in order to uh, have a, a better tax strategy. But, th but that's about it. You know, like I, I personally look at, you know, like one of the things I always say to them is like, if I see you driving an $8,000 contract after you signed your first you know, pro contract, I'm going to come and visit you with a baseball bat, you know, and that <laughs> car's not going to look very good after I'm done with it, you know? So it's more stuff like that. Education around saving uh, is I think really, really important for a lot of these kids. 
And some of them, you know, they're just like that naturally, like the Danes, you know, like those guys are all big savers, you know, and some of them are not, you know, some of them come from small towns, you know, in small countries and, you know, the car is a way or the watch is a way for them to show that they've arrived. You know, when you're living at home and maybe making 80,000, 90,000, 100,000 euros as a Neopro, you know, like you can buy that watch, you can buy that car because you don't really have expenses. That doesn't mean you should be doing that. So we really focus on trying to help them make better choices and talk to them about decision making and how to come to the right decision and help them in in that path, you know, and then some structures around savings and things like that. That's that's kind of surreal. You're like talking to a millionaire's parents about making them save money. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like a 20 year old millionaire. Well, some of these kids don't have, you know, a background where they really are going to make good decisions. And some of them do. Some of them have professional parents, parents that, you know, understand this stuff that are, that are influencing that at home that are, you know, that are giving them right advice. And some of them, you know, the, the parents just don't know. They don't have the resources. They don't have the experience to really, you know, help them make good choices. So, so we try to make sure we do because, you know, once they're done racing, their life starts and then it's over, you know, and a lot of these guys, you know, this is one of the things that, you know, cycling isn't very good at and professional sports in general, which is, you know, helping people think of what happens after their career done, the planning. And we, from the very beginning, when these kids signed their first contract, we're saying, this is a period in your life. It's going to be an amazing period in your life. It could be the best period in your life, but it's just a period in your life. And you need to absolutely be thinking about what happens after this is done. And you need to plan for that. And, you know, planning for when your career is over isn't the same thing as giving up on your career, you know, and, and teams don't really do that. And, and, you know, they haven't really shown a real interest in that and neither has the CPA or the UCI or anybody. So we try to fill that void with them. That's very cool. Well, I won't uh, take up any more of your time. I don't want to uh, encroach on your, uh, your beautiful Ngamba trip through Portugal. Uh, And my one time with, with Lawrence was actually one of our first, one of our first clients, Lawrence, you never had to tell Lawrence to save. He's, he's Dutch, super cheap, you know, saving is in in there. (laughs) They are like the cheapest people ever. (laughs) (laughs) So so wonderful people, but you know, they know how to save. That's uh, that's (laughs) very, that's going to get me in trouble. (laughs) Um, So he was a client and then that's cool. You guys are just, uh, you've still continued that relationship. Yeah. Even after he's done some of our clients we've kept representing, like uh, Jens Voigt and Ted King, we still represent and still handle a lot of their stuff. Lawrence, you know, we don't represent him anymore, but he's a good friend and, and you know, we stay in touch and we see each other every year. He was sort of, he was the first big rider in the agency, you know, so he's like, you know, even though he's not a client, he's still on our WhatsApp group for all the kids. And, you know, the older riders, they really they spend a lot of time talking to these kids and giving them advice that only they can give them because they've gone through the same process that they've gone through. And even though I was a pro, I was never a pro at that level, you know, that, that I can, I can relate to this, some of the things they're going through. So it helps when we have guys like Lawrence and guys like Ted and guys like Jens that are still very much involved in the agency and with these kids that when they're going through some of these decisions and when they're going through some of these experiences as in the beginning of their careers, they can talk to these guys about, Hey, what was it like for you? You know, what are some of the mistakes you wish you hadn't made? You know, what are some of the good decisions you, you made that you're really glad you made back then? So, so it's, there's a real community feeling, you know, we have a WhatsApp group with, with all the kids in the agency and, you know, we've got four or five of them at the Jira right now. And it's amazing to see the success of one is the success of the other and how sometimes when one starts winning, the others start winning and how, how close they are, how much they're congratulating each other. You know, it's, it's really a nice thing for us, for Ken and I, you know, mom and dad to, to, to see the kids do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That would be very cool. That would be motivating to me as a writer too, if I was part of this community and then other writers were doing well. Yeah. 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 So, but it, it helps when you pick good kids and good, they're good people and, you know, good people generally, you know, are, are supportive of each other. So. Well, that's, uh, that's very cool to hear that this, uh, the youth breakout sensation of the Giro is also a good guy, a good kid. Yeah. He's a very yeah. good guy. Yeah. And he's getting a lot of really good press in Italy because of that. You know, he's very well liked in the Peloton, even though he's only been there for a little bit, you know, like people are super impressive how polite he is. Yeah. That's great. Great to hear. 
Well, thanks. Thanks for your time, Joao. I'm going to get a lot better at saying this name over the course of the next couple of years. My Starbucks name is Bob. So you can just call me. Yeah, I'm sure that's a disaster. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, have a great evening and, and thanks for joining. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Yeah, I hope everyone enjoyed that interview. And let's just enjoy the next few days of uh, if you have anything to get done, get it done in the next few days before the Giro heats up uh, next week and the week after that. Uh, But it's the Giro, so anything could happen. It's hard to really take a day off following these races. So everyone have a great weekend, and I'll be back next week. And if you want to keep up with cycling in the meantime, check out the newsletter at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. All right, thank you. Bye.